The scripture reading tonight is from the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and the Lord, and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and lo, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Then God said, Do not come near. Put off your shoes from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring forth my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. The word of the Lord. Like, um, like, what is God like? I mean, I'm starting to ask such like a straightforward question, like straight up here, and it's such a basic question at that, but I think that's what ha- what's happening here. Like, okay, when you write a sermon, you just like, you know, have you ever like cleaned out your closet and you get everything out and everything's all on the floor and then you're just tired? And you can't even imagine what's going to happen next or how it can all get put back together or anything like that. That's sort of what happens when you write a sermon. You take a text and you just pull it all apart. And, you know, that's where I was at. And I was thinking about the biblical narrative here, thinking about this text. And I'm thinking about the A, dismantling orthodoxy lectionary that we've been doing, thinking about the biblical narrative's propensity to move towards creating hierarchies and power structures and orthodoxies, while at the same time moving to dismantle them moving to, to, to deconstruct them, undermine them. And so then I think, oh, yeah, I'm starting to get a handle on this whole thing, this whole text, get a handle on what I'm thinking, kind of straighten out my thoughts so I can write them down and then tell them to you in a way that is kind of comprehensible. And I make an outline, and I read it over, and I think, yes, this is it. There's just one thing missing, and then I'm finished. I just have to figure out who God is. Here's Moses. He's out in the wilderness tending his sheep. Well, they're not his sheep. They're his father-in-law's sheep. Jethro, his father-in-law's Jethro. And he was either a prince of Midian or a priest of Midian, depending on how you deal with a few translation issues or whether you believe Rabbi Josiah or Rabbi Eliezer. 
And you know how Rabbi Eliezer can be. But what you decide, or I mean what I decide about this, uh, could affect the way I think that the text of Exodus is trying to tell us who God is. But just tuck that away for later. Moses has no idea what is about to happen. Like, he thought his life was settled, right? He's a shepherd now, and that's it. It's not how we thought things would turn out, but here he is. I mean, he was raised in the Egyptian palace as the son of the pharaoh. Then he had an incident. He was out for a walk. He saw some Egyptian roughing up, beating one of his fellow Hebrew, and he intervened. Ended up killing him. There was no one around, so he buried him in the sand. Next day, he's out for another walk. He sees two of his own countrymen. I mean, they don't really have a country, but you know what I mean. Um, A few of his other countrymen, they're arguing, and one beats the other one. Starts hitting him. And Moses intervenes, which I don't know why he would ever do that. Since what happened yesterday, when he was out for a walk and intervened, ended up killing someone, but... He does intervene again. I don't know why he would get involved at all, unless he's like out there looking for action or something. Like he got so into it the day before, and he wanted another tussle. I mean, I don't mean to diminish murder by calling it a tussle. But I also don't want to imply that Moses was out looking like some kind of psychopath. Maybe it's just that he was like raised in the palace, you know, and it's like one of those things, like one of those children of privilege, and he just thinks like, He can just intervene in anything and tell people what to do, and he assumes he's in charge, and they'll just listen to him. So he steps in and he says, hey, why are you hitting one of your fellow countrymen? And the guy stops and says to Moses, what are you going to do about it? Kill me and bury me in the sand like you did the Egyptian? (laughs) Moses kind of freaks out. Knows he didn't get away with it, and it's just a matter of time before he gets caught, and so he runs away. He meets a shepherd girl, a deal's made with her father, who is a prince of Midian or a priest of Midian, depending on how you are, if you're on team Rabbi Eliezer or team Reb Josiah, which again is not important for the story now, but could come up later. So that's how Moses finds himself shepherding. He's just shepherding away out there. I don't know exactly what that involves, um, if it's like like moment to moment what it involves, is there a lot of constant monitoring? Like, uh, no wolves over there, check. No wolves over there, check. Eating grass back there, good. I don't know. I don't know at all. Maybe it doesn't seem to me actually like it would be that intense, the shepherding. Like, I don't know. I think it would be just like maybe like walking around with sheep in the wilderness, sort of, I think. You know? I think sheep maybe pretty much take care of themselves. They probably go out there every day. And that's just pretty much in the evening saying it's time to go home. I don't know. So I think, like, you know, maybe it's not as excited, exciting a life as living in the Pharaoh's palace. But maybe Moses is resigned to a life of less action. Maybe he loves it. Maybe he's glad to be far away from the city and the craziness. I mean, every time the guy takes a walk, somebody's beating somebody up. Probably be good to get away from that. Remember, he was never quite comfortable in the palace. Always felt like an outsider, like he didn't belong. So this is where he finds himself, either bored or grateful, just taking it easy. 
when something catches his eye. It's a bush. It's on fire. And he notices that the bush is burning, but the bush is not being consumed. Just like maybe seeing a bush doesn't seem like it's that remarkable to him. Maybe bushes start on fire in the wilderness all the time. Or it's like really hot and they just sort of burst into flames or something. I'm picturing like tumbleweed, right? Like it has to be really dried up bush or like a dead bush. But maybe I'm reading it wrong. Maybe it's growing green, lush bush, and that's why he stops initially, because bushes don't usually like start on fire when they're lush and green. But then he notices that it is on fire, but is not consumed. That is what's causing him to say to himself, let me turn aside. Let me turn aside that I may see this great sight, why the bush does not burn up. And that's when it happens. When he turns aside and begins to approach the bush, the text says, the Lord saw that he turned aside to see. And God calls to him from the center of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am. Which is what people always say when God calls out to them. Here I am, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, now Moses. Here I am. So if God ever calls out to you, little tip. I mean, what am I saying? If, when God calls out to you, just say, here I am. Moses says, here I am. God says, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals. You are on holy ground. And God goes on to introduce God's self. God says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hides his face. The belief being that if you see God's face, you'll die. Well, that seems to be the rule, at least in the book of Exodus. Because in the book of Genesis, when God calls out to Adam and Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, there was no hiding their face. They just straight up talked to God in the book of Genesis. I mean, they say, here I am, no hiding. Well, except for one time when Adam did hide, but there were circumstances. Um, but here, Moses hides his face. And another thing else that's something different here, in Genesis, God doesn't use, like, tricks or supernatural devices to talk to people. Like, he just walks into Abraham's camp and sits down and says, guess what? You're going to be a father. They have a little something to eat. It's fine. But here, God, why does he do what he does? He sets a bush on fire to get Moses' attention. And then he speaks from inside the bush. Maybe, I don't know, that's weird. Maybe God is just a bush. Maybe that, it's not like God is speaking from, maybe God's the bush. Like God can manifest any way God wants to manifest. Dove, human, foliage. It's very common in the ancient Near East, uh, Eastern cultures to associate a deity with a sacred tree. Like some big, old, twisty, grand tree. You'd have this tree and it would become a sacred place where one could communicate with their God. A tree, not a bush. This is kind of a joke. Like, not kind of, I think it really is a joke. Well, not a joke, but a kind of clear reference to the sacred tree thing. God appearing in a little bush, 
maybe tells us, tells Moses, tells the first hearers of this, what this God is like, what God is like. God can come in a little bush. James Allison, the Catholic theologian, thinks that this burning bush actually tells us a lot about what God is like. He says, the burning bush, which is not consumed, seems to me a magnificent image of the power which is not in rivalry with, and thus not on the same level as anything that is. See, he goes on to explain, he gets there by starting a long time earlier, talking about how monotheism is a horrible idea, but a wonderful discovery. It's not an idea that really can clearly be explained or held. Because even you say there's one God, you can say there's one God, like when God says, I am one, the Lord God is one, and then there's two, three, four, and five other gods. Is God one God among many gods? Which isn't exactly monotheism. Or what does this one mean? God is like one God, there is just God, and then there's other things, that there's nothing else like God. Because God is, God is, he says, more like no God than the gods. Because God, you cannot, this is what to find in monotheism gets hard to do, because you say, well, it's not like this other thing. You see, it's always defined in opposition. And he says that there's no way, that God is not, God is in opposition to nothing. God is in rivalry with nothing. So how do you hold that idea or explain it? God is just... You can't say not like anything else, which is what you have to say, but it's outside of whatever you could say. There is, God has written rivalry with nothing, like no thing. So he says, the reason Moses even looks at this bush is because he recognizes that, this is, that God is present. Because the fire is not in rivalry with the fuel. So it is not consumed. The bush is not consumed because it is burning, yet is not consumed because it is God. And God is in rivalry with nothing. The fuel, not in rivalry with the fire. He says, this is a beautiful discovery about what God is and who God is. I like that way of thinking about God. Because we are in rivalry with so many things. We, are, are, we live our lives in opposition to so many things. We don't know what it means to be outside of that. I mean, but God is outside of that. And it's, it's beautiful and it's freeing. And I just wish the rest of this story wasn't here so it could seem true for a while. No, it's weird. Like, who is God? This is what makes I like that idea. With and I don't know why James Allison didn't continue on. Like, so God, the fire and bush that is not consumed, speaks to Moses and said, "You're on holy ground." He introduces himself, and he says, "I've heard the cries of your people in Egypt, and I want you to go and I want you to bring them out, and then I will send you to this greatest." He says, "Indeed, I know the sufferings of the people." And I've come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the land which 
currently belongs to the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, and the Jezebites. Seems like some rivalries are going to be happening. What is a rivalry when two people want to occupy the same space? God is sending them to somebody. God's giving them. He's delivering them and giving them somebody else's land. And Joshua, we'll find out as we go through in the uh, future weeks here, spends a lot of his time going around killing all of them. What is God like? I mean, what you could say, and maybe James Allen would say this, well, like, oh, you know, the bits where God is not in rivalry with anyone, that's the real truth. The other parts where it seems to be a convenient excuse to put the reason for your people to wipe out other people's in God's mouth, well, that's just, that's humans writing this book. All the bad bits, that's on us. All the good bits, that's, that's God finding God's way inside this narrative inside our kind of understanding. But understanding is, like, quite limited, obviously. And throughout this whole book, so we've been looking at this, through this A, the dismantling orthodoxy lectionary that we put together, that it really does seem like there is these movements in the narrative to build up hierarchies. And there's also to build up orthodoxies. And there's also a simultaneous movement to deconstruct them. And so, is it God when those hierarchies are being deconstructed and humans when those hierarchies are being built up? Seems like God does a lot of sending people to smite and smote and kill everyone. Seems like God sets out a lot of rules. But again, maybe that's not God. I don't know. Why does God keep showing up, not just in this narrative, why does God keep showing up in different ways in different places? Maybe that's because that's where we are. Maybe in spite of whatever God is not in rivalry with anything, God can show up in the guise of our ugliest imaginations and definitions of God. Maybe God actually can show up in, you know, fundamentalist definitions of who God is. Or in, uh, I don't know, maybe God even can show up as the white-bearded old guy. Maybe God can be, look like power, if that's the direction we're looking in. Maybe God gets in front of us wherever we're looking. And then starts to take things apart from there.